Jason Samples. Uh, I'm an elder at Parkland Chapel. Uh, get the blessing, like I said, to kind of serve on the board uh, here with uh, Steve Persley and the Mingis, and um, just a just a great blessing uh, to be here with you. Um, I'm not a pastor. I know that's hard to believe by seeing the great shirt. I plan to dress like a pastor to kind of look like it, maybe fake everybody out. But then I got this awesome shirt this morning. I thought, well, I got to wear that. I can't. So if you if you don't remember my name, you know, you can call me a bondservant of Jesus Christ or you can call me Jedi Master, whichever one you remember the most. But it's on my shirt there, Jedi Master. So there you go. So in case you, uh, our message today is going to be kind of like what we teach our kids when we're fathers. I hope I've taught my kids as much about the Bible as I've taught them about Star Wars. I hope, I pray, uh, through the grace of Jesus Christ. But kind of a message about fathers. And um, just kind of starting off a little bit today uh, with a Father's Day message. And I um, uh, wanted to start off just a little bit with Father's Day. So Father's Day, an explanation about Father's Day. One little boy, when asked to explain, what is Father's Day? He said, well, it's just like Mother's Day, only you don't spend as much on the presents, is what Father's Day is. But actually, the Father's Day origins comes from a woman named Sonora Smart Dodd, who I hadn't heard of until I kind of studied this. But in 1909, she lived in Spokane, Washington, and she was seeking to honor her father, and it really came upon her in church. She was in a Mother's Day church service. Mother's Day had just kind of been enacted during that time. And she's in a Mother's Day church service. And her mother had passed away in childbirth. And her father, who was a Civil War veteran, raised her and five siblings. So he raised six children. And she was thinking, how could I honor my father? What could we do to honor my father? And Father's Day came upon her. And Spokane, Washington had the first Father's Day a year later in 1910. In 1924, Calvin Coolidge decided, you know what, this would be a great idea to honor fathers. But not only to honor fathers, but to honor the importance of what it is to be a father. The importance of what it is to be a father. Which is what we're going to talk about a little bit today. I'm going to kind of preach to the fathers, so I'm going to preach. I'm probably going to teach. I'm actually a school teacher. I'm a school administrator, so you're always going to get some teaching, I guess, from me more than preaching, but I'm speaking, going to speak a little bit more to fathers today. In 1966, uh, President Johnson made a proclamation stating the importance of fathers and that they should be honored there uh, by our nation. And then finally, the great president, President Richard Nixon, everybody's top on the list probably, 1972, uh, made it an official, uh, uh, made it official in our country that the third Sunday in June would be Father's Day, and uh, Sonora Smart Dodd's father's birthday was in June, so that's why they had Father's Day in Spokane, Washington, in, in June, and so we practice it still today. Dr. James Dobson, he said that good fathers are made, not born. Good fathers are made not born. Fathers are often followed. Mothers are our first nurturers, our first caregivers, our first that truly invest inside of us. But fathers often, and I don't know if this is you, but I, most fathers, I would, I would say, I struggled with that at a young age. The babies, the diapers, bless your heart for going back to all that here soon. 
All of those things. That I always say I would love to have a lot more children if they would sleep like babies. Right? But the following, children just tend to do that with fathers. Whether we're good or bad, whether we're someone worth following or not, they tend to follow us. Irma Bombeck wrote, When the Lord was creating fathers, he started with a tall frame. An angel standing nearby said, What kind of father is that? If you're going to make children so close to the ground, why have you put fathers up so high? He won't be able to shoot marbles without kneeling. He won't be able to tuck a child into bed without bending. He won't even be able to kiss a child without stooping. God smiled and said, Yes, but if I make him child size, who will the child have to look up to? So fathers, we're going to be looked up to whether we want to be or not. The most important thing that a father can do, according to Dr. James Dobson, his second thing is love their wives. In Ephesians 5.25, we are called as husbands to love our wives as Jesus Christ loved the church. If our children can see us do that, I think Dr. Dobson is right. That could be maybe the most important thing we can do as fathers. And finally, Christian fathers, Dr. Dobson speculates, will arrange to spend time with their children. As men, though, we often focus, and I don't know about you, but I'm guilty of this, we focus on the practical. We focus on the process and not always the person. An example of this is maybe you've heard the story of the mother who left in her room in the maternity who who left her room rather in the maternity ward to go down to the nursery. And she found her husband staring at this beautiful newborn baby of theirs. And the mother could tell he was captivated by the baby and how intently he stood there looking down at the child. She was touched and she finally tiptoed up behind him and she slipped her arm through his and said, "Honey, what are you thinking? And he said, I just can't understand how they are able to make a crib like that for only $89.95. As men, we need models. We focus on the how-tos, the fix-it, the hunters, the gatherers. We are the outside trying to build, to grow, to improve. So who can be our model to actually be a good father. And I thought about this as Mike Mingi and I talked a little bit about today's message. I thought, gosh, we could go with Abraham. We could go with Adam. You know, we could go with David in different ways, good and bad. We could go a different direction, even talk about Paul and how he invested into Timothy. Because fathers are not always biological. But finally, it was just called back to our good, good father, which I'm so touched that we sang that today, to our heavenly father. To God. So wherever you are today, whether you were blessed to have a wonderful, biological, traditional, for lack of a better term, father, or whether you didn't and you struggled there, one of the blessings we have as Christians, and if you are not a Christian, I would hope that there's some gospel in the message today to call you to it. One of the great blessings is that we have a God, the Father. That's one of the ways He associates Himself to us. That we have a father that is a father to the fatherless. So God the Father. Why the Father? Why the Father? As I studied that a little bit, we look at the Holy Trinity. And we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we see that in all of these divine 
experiences of God, these divine parts of God, we see there is the nature of God. And as a father, you know, that nature and nurture debate. Our children will have our nature, but they're always going to have their own nature. And so that balance of it. My grandfather would say uh, to my mother, and she says it to me, that I should be able to at least understand 50% of you, right? That's that nature part. But there's always the own part that is our own. And I see that in my own children. I see my, their mother in them. I see me in them. But I also see something I don't even understand. I don't know where that comes from. And it's them. It's the them. But in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we see a creator, we see a redeemer, and we see a sanctifier. Correct? And God is all of those things. But Jesus chooses to identify God as Abba, as Father, our Father who art in heaven. We are all sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ if we are saved. So God is this entire trinity all at once, and I struggle with understanding that, and I'll leave that for Mike Mingi to teach better than me. But God the Father definitely gives us an example of the external, that is fathers. As fathers, we are the external. Mothers, naturally, the internal. They carry the child. They nurture the child. They see inside and invest the child in a way that we as fathers struggle with. One of my sons is very quiet. One of my sons is very not. The one that is quiet, it amazes me how my wife can look at him and go, hmm, this is what's going on. I'm like, how did you know that? It's through some sort of mother telepathy that they have because of this big, being internal connection. But as fathers, we are challenged to do the external. From the very beginning of their lives all the way through. We're the ones that are challenged to see what they could be. What could you be? And encourage that. Now as fathers, I think as men a lot of times, we look at it and go, we see the external and how to fix it. We can build again. We can fix. We can repair. We can plan. We can hunt. We can gather. We can do all these oh, 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 man things that we like to do, right? But we see that God the Father really does those things. We're really facilitators. It's God who is the only one that can create with nothing else. So as a father, how do we bring ourselves to be more godlike? Well, first, just looking at three simple ways. God loves his children. God loves his children. I always get frustrated in messages when the pastor has 56 different verses because the Bible sword drill guy in me comes out. If you ever did that as a kid, and I'm trying to race there, and I can never get there in time. I didn't want to do that, and then as I studied, I just kept finding verses and verses that I loved. So bear with me. You don't have to go with me. I'll, I've marked them. I'll try to read them, and don't feel like you have to do Bible sword drill unless you want to. But I'll kind of read through them quickly. All right. First uh, John 4.19 says, as we see that how God loves his children, it says, we love him because he first loved us. God loved us first. God loved us first. Then in Romans 5, 8, we see that God didn't wait until we measured up. There in uh, Romans, I'm sorry, let me go back one more. Okay, here we go, Romans 5, 8. So he says there in Romans 5, 8, that, but God demonstrates his own love towards us, that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
So praise the Lord that he loved us first and praise the Lord that he doesn't wait until we measured up. You're not quite worthy of my love yet, but keep working on it, you'll get there. That's not how God is. And if you ever hear somebody say, well, I've got to clean myself up before I can come to church. There's no waiting. Come to the Father just as you are. All right? Such an encouragement. And then finally there, Romans 8, uh, 38 through 39, God never stops loving us. It says, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other thing created, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So whatever it is, nothing can separate us from our God. And these are things that, as Travis was talking about his little girl, you really, truly have a deeper understanding when you become a parent might there be sorrow for my children? Sure. Might there be even human anger or maybe righteous anger? I don't know. Sure. Will I ever stop loving my child? Never. Never. And how much more is God the Father? It made me think of a song that I just love that's getting played on the radio a lot right now. Um, Corey Asbury's Reckless Love. This is how we are called to love as fathers. Again, speaking about God to us, the lyrics of the song say, Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so kind to me. When I was your foe, still your love fought for me. You have been so, so good to me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. You have been so, so kind to me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And I've heard it debated, actually. God loving recklessly, is that a fair way to put that? Well, I will say this, thinking about Father's Day. If my... If my son's come to me, and I've got one now who's 14, and he's getting to that teenage time, and he came to me, and we have a conversation about love, and he, and he says, well, God, or, 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 sorry, I wish he'd call me God. He calls me Jedi Master, maybe, but he says, Dad, schmucko, Dad. He says, Dad, I found this girl. I loved her first. I found this girl. I haven't waited till she measured up or showed me any kind of worth or value or, or any endearing quality. And I found this girl who has done all of these horrible debauchery type things, but I'll never stop loving her. I'd say, son, don't love reckless like that. Don't love reckless like that. You'll get hurt. You'll get hurt. It'll hurt you. But God steps out in that love knowing that nothing we can do will hurt Him. And that He loves us to bring us to Him. He loves us recklessly to draw us to Him. That's what that is, is calling us to do uh, and calling that God does, is that He loves us recklessly. So God first loves His children. Okay, next, God encourages. So as a father, first we love, even to the point of loving recklessly. Next, we encourage. Uh, we see that God encourages um, Abram. In Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6, we see God encouraging Abram 
to be the father of the Israelites. One of the first songs I can remember learning in children's church was Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Well, it starts here with Abram in Genesis 15, and God comes to him and encourages him, and he's already told him at this point, he's already told Abram that you are going to be a father of a great generation. But he comes back years after this has happened, after Abram is feeling old, as Abram is feeling like he has nothing to give, no value to give any longer. Like there's got to be some way that I can plan this out. Maybe I can have a child this way or that way. God comes back and encourages here in Genesis 15. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? You told me this was going to happen, but it's not. It's just not happening. And so Abram has a moment, almost like John the Baptist. I think about John the Baptist being such a great man, but there he is imprisoned, in, in and he sends a call to Jesus and says, are you the one or should I seek another? Do you remember that? When I hear that, I can relate so often. Well, here's Abram, our great father, saying, God, I still go childless. And the heir of my house is going to be Eliezer, or Damascus. So it's going to go to somebody else, not in my family. Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside. Again, that external is what we're called to as men, I think. I think that's the masculine in us that we need to step into. And women can do it. Women too often do it. And I will tell you as an educator, it breaks my heart how often women have to do it and step in and be fathers. Our grandmothers have to step in and be fathers. Our aunts have to step in and be fathers. Our foster mothers have to step in and be fathers. I'm starting to sound like a preacher now, aren't I? But that's the educator in me. I see it too often. And the masculine, we don't step in and say, I'm going to take care of the external that outside of me, I'm going to help an heir grow on and transcend and go beyond me. This one shall not be an heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now towards the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord. This is where Abraham is found to be a follower of God. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. God encourages. God goes on to encourage Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. We see the Israelites later have been now put into slavery by the Egyptians. And they've been there for 400 years in slavery, calling out, please save us, please save us, please save us. And who is the one that God goes to? He goes to a man with a speech impediment. He goes to a man that's a murderer. He goes to a man who's been highly educated and had all these wonderful things, but then he leaves it and wants to just go out and be a simple shepherd. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? At this point in my life, sometimes I think nothing's wrong with that. Sometimes that's all I want to do is just be on my farm and be left alone. Just leave me alone. Let me go to church and worship. I don't need to lead anybody out of anything else. But God comes to him here, after he's failed many times, and encourages him. Because God sees, again, the outside as fathers, seeing what our children could be. 
He comes to him there during the burning bush story, which you're probably very familiar with. As Moses is out tending the sheep, he's being, he sees the burning bush. And in verse 10, God says to him, Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Again, if you sit there and you go, I don't have the faith, I'm not strong enough, I'm not worthy enough to do whatever it is you've called me. Here's Abram feeling the same. Here's Moses feeling the same. So God encourages. In verse 12, So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And we see that later, that Moses does serve God on that mountain. And God goes on to call himself the great I am. He says, I am who I am, meaning I am whatever you need. That's what God, how God identifies himself to Moses as he encourages him. And then finally, one of my favorite figures in the Bible, Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, we see that Joshua waits for leadership. Joshua is a supporter, an encourager. I love it when Joshua is young. He's one of the uh, spies that goes out into Egypt, or the promised land rather, and comes back and says, yeah, they got giants, but we can take them. Me and old guy Caleb here, who I'd love to be Caleb, as strong as he was in his young years, in his old years, right? Come back and says, we can whoop them. We can take them. We can go into the promised land. That was the young man that Joshua was. But he stayed with Moses. He was loyal to Moses. He was a loyal follower for all those years in the desert, for 40 long years, 40 years of testing in the desert, until finally it's time to enter the promised land. And who gets to be the leader? Not Moses at that point, but Joshua. And of course, Joshua is concerned at this point. I've been second in command all this time. Can I do this? And God says to him in one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Joshua 1 verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. As fathers, we are called to be encouragers. We're called to see in our child not just what they are, but what they can be and encourage them. Speak words of encouragement into them and through them. Okay, so we move on to a third thing as fathers that we can do to model God our Father. And this one is probably one of the more challenging ones at times. God disciplines His children. You know, recently I heard a story about triplets. Three young boys, and they got along great, very, very well. They saw everything alike, and they were very, very loyal to each other. Even to the point that if one of them got in trouble, the other two would never tattle on the one that done something wrong. So a neighbor asked the father, how in the world do you know which one to punish when one of them does something wrong? And the father said, well, it's pretty simple. I put them all to bed without dinner in the same room, and then the one with a black eye in the morning is the one that I punish. As fathers, we need to look for wisdom in what we do. We need to look for God's guidance in what we do in disciplining. But if we avoid it, again, if we delegate it, we're not, we're not being a biblical father. And we're not certainly giving our children what they need. So how does God discipline? Well, we look in Proverbs. There's a lot of wisdom to be gleaned in Proverbs. But in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12, 
It says there, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son, in whom he delights. So if we truly love our children, we will correct, even when it's hard, even when it's, dis- when it's, it's disagreeable. All right, we go on there to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 through 11, talks about wisely disciplining our children and how this reflects the wisdom of God. There in Hebrews 12, uh, verses 10 through 11, it says there, For they indeed for a few days chastened us as it seemed best to them. But he, for, he being God, chastened us for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening or disciplining seems to be joyful for the present, but it's painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, giving a message on how to be trained to discipline your child could take us a lot longer than my wife said I had to speak. So I won't go into that, but I would encourage you to look in the Word of God and look for how God disciplines. And so often, yes, He's merciful. And so often, yes, He's gracious. And so often, but He is not afraid to discipline. As a matter of fact, He has to discipline. He's righteous. He's holy. And if we're going to teach our children righteousness, we have to have standards and guidelines and expectations, and we have to hold to them. Where would you find them? I would encourage you to seek, seek God's wisdom in his, in his Word. So, it kind of in closing... Tying it all up. An earthly father's responsibility. So when I started the study uh, for this message, I was really being called into the Bible study together, Bible study. I don't know if any of you guys are doing that, um, but it's a blessing. And I, I, I thought some would, so I thought I would touch on it. Because one thing I think is cool about it, I remember when I started going to Parkland Chapel and our pastor, uh, Pastor Harrison, had us, challenged us to do a Bible study, a Bible reading together, read through the Bible all at the same time. I was kind of like, well, this is kind of weird. I've never really been to a church that did. We had daily breads, and that was kind of cool, you know, and daily breads are beautiful, don't get me wrong. But I was like, eh, I don't know. And so I kind of got my own Bible and did my own Bible study, and it was good, and it was a blessing. But I would come to church And I started noticing people were talking about what they were reading. They were talking about this scripture or that scripture or the other scripture. And I'm kind of on the outside going, well, that wasn't what I read. God spoke to me about da 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 And then I kind of realized after I read through the Bible a time or two that it isn't just about God speaking to me. It's about God speaking to us, a church, a common voice, a common message. So... I go back to Bible study together. If you're doing Bible study together, maybe this will meet you where you're at. All right? It's a two-year Bible reading plan to read through the Bible in two years. And so right now, we're studying Hezekiah. right? And we're about ready to study Manasseh. Now, Hezekiah. We see Hezekiah in 2 Kings. We see him in Chronicles. We see him in Isaiah. All right? Hezekiah was a reformer as a king of Judah. He was one of the few good guys, right? I don't know if you've ever had that Bible study where they put up the good kings, the kings that followed God, and the bad kings, right? We weren't supposed to have a king at all, Israel, right? God was supposed to be their king. 
But they wanted a king, they wanted a king, they wanted a king, they wanted a king, and finally God said, and this is what he does with sin sometimes, you want it, you got it. Again, a way that he disciplines, right? Kind of reminds me of my grandfather when I first asked him about chewing tobacco. You want it? You got it. Here you go. That didn't go so well for me, my first, my first wad of red man, right? So he gives it to us, right? But kind of like the red man, after a little bit, I started to get a taste for it. Start to get a taste for it. This is what I want. It's good for everybody else. It's good for me. And the next thing I know, I've got myself a good old mouthful of sin in my life. And so we got, we got kings. And all of these kings that are doing evil, doing evil. But Hezekiah kind of stands over there as one of the kings that followed God. He was a reformer. All right? We see that he was a king from around 715 to 686 B.C. is what they think. He was one of the few kings of Judah. This is after... Uh, we had a, a split, right, of the tribes. So he's a king of Judah. He was constantly aware of God's acts in the past. He recognizes that they're not doing or following God the way they have been taught or that they should from the past. And he wants God's interest and God's actions and godly worship in the present. Now, he did some amazing things. He bucked insurmountable odds, which you've been, if you've been reading in the, in the Bible study together. Here is the Assyrians. They come up, and they're outside the walls, and they're talking trash to the Judeans who are inside the walls, and they're talking trash in Hebrew. And their, their uh, Israel leaders even go, hey, hey, could you, uh, could you not talk in Hebrew? We understand your language. You can tell us. And they're like, no, we know Hebrew, and we're going to talk it because what we're here to do is intimidate. We're here to scare. We're not here to uh, negotiate. There's no negotiating. We're here to intimidate your people. His people stood there and said nothing back in response, though. They listened to Hezekiah. They respected Hezekiah. And we see that Hezekiah, while he is strong in leading his people, shortly thereafter, he goes back to God and goes, God, save us, we're going to die. This is terrible. It's going to be horrible. And he has a moment of prayer where he just breaks down. And I love that because if you look at the study questions in Bible study together, I, I used to not do it with my phone, but I've started to because you can click on these little study questions. So I clicked on the studies questions and one of them says, have you ever been in a time of trial where you showed both faith and fear? And when I heard that and thought about that and meditated on it, I'm like, yes, about every time since I've become a, really tried to be a Christian. It's not, oh, that time I was faithful the whole way through. You know? No. No. Like Hezekiah. Hey, stand tall. Don't say a word to them. Be strong and silent and wait on the Lord. You guys got it? I'm going back here to pray. God, help us. We're going to die. It's horrible. Which they were going to die. The Assyrians were the real deal. They're leading you out with fish hooks in your mouth. All right? They're taking your skin, pardon me, and making it furniture. These are bad dudes. All right? So we go back, and what happens? God supernaturally saves them. An angel of God slays 185,000 Assyrian troops. It's one of the most supernatural moments in the whole Bible. And as I read it, I'm like, why don't we talk about this more? This is incredible. Surely Hezekiah's faith is going to be off the charts from now on, right? Well, kind of. <laughs> He goes on and he removes child sacrifice. 
Hezekiah. That touches me. Do we have any child sacrifice today? Do we sacrifice our children to anything? Matter of fact, as I wear this shirt sometimes, it, it humbles me. How much have I spent teaching my children about Jedis instead of teaching my children about Jesus? What are we going to sacrifice as a cheap God for our children? But Hezekiah gets rid of child sacrifice. He also reinstates the practice of tithing. What an interesting thing there to, to, go, to make that a focus. To go back to giving God your first fruits. Giving God that first portion of what he give, first gives to us. Wonderful things he does, does there. And he had a deep prayer life in faith that made a difference. His prayer made a difference. An example, we see there again in Isaiah. Isaiah comes to him and says, Hezekiah, because Isaiah is his prophet, right? Isaiah is that voice of God. How blessed we are that God speaks to us now because the veil has been torn. But Isaiah comes to him and says, prepare yourself, you're about to die. And as researching this, he had these boils, but it was probably cancer. If you hear that word today still, it's like, what puts fear in, in us more than that word, right? And so Hezekiah turns, it says, to the wall in his bed and cries out to God, save me, God, save me, God, save me. And he even says, a dead man can't proclaim your glory. A dead man can't teach God's glory to his children. That's what Hezekiah says in Isaiah, and that's the Jason Samples version, but that's what he says. So Isaiah comes back quickly and says, God has said you're going to be healed, and he's going to give you 15 more years. 15 more years. So his prayer life is powerful. But weaknesses in Hezekiah, when I look at him as a father, he showed little interest in planning or protecting the spiritual heritage that he enjoyed. An example is later Isaiah comes to him and says that your people are going to be let off and it's going to be by the Babylonians. And it's going to be horrible. And Hezekiah is kind of like, when's this going to happen? He's like, well, it's going to happen after your life. And Hezekiah says, whew, thank you God that at least it won't happen in my lifetime. You ever, you ever feel that way? Thank you, God, that I'm not going to have to see how this whole mess turns out. I'm not going to be in the tribulation. <laughs> Thank, you God. Thank you, God, that, you know, I'm not going to have to. And the older I get, the more I think like that. <laughs> and as I heard, first heard that, I thought, what a terrible statement for his children. How could this wonderful man of faith say that? Then the other, I read a, a scholar who said he said that because he's like, my kids won't listen, so at least they'll get the con some discipline there to hopefully they will listen. I thought, well, that's a, that's a pretty righteous father, right, to feel that way. But then we go on and see that he has 15 years. And during those 15 years, he has a son. He has a son named Manasseh. So he was supposed to die, but he prayed to God. God gave him what he asked for, and he gets a son named Manasseh. A Manasseh who, at the age of 12, starts to rule as king. And he starts to rule as king kind of side by side with Hezekiah. Side by side, they work together. Early, early age. Manasseh leads for 55 years. 55 years of Manasseh. And Manasseh is one of the worst. If you look at the bad, 
he's like the baddest. And he brings back, and one of the first things he does is desecrate Solomon's temple, and he brings idols in to worship. So what, and that made me think, what kind of things do we bring in from the world to worship into our church? He goes on and he brings in uh, the worship of heathen gods out. So let's bring in more of the world. And then finally, he sacrifices children. He brings child sacrifice back. And not only that, he sacrifices his own children. Now this is a man who served 12 years right there beside, or by his father's side as he started. And this is what he got out of that. And it made me think, what in the world? And I'm sure Hezekiah sits back and goes, thanks a lot, Jason Samples, for using me as an example today. But I sit back and go, Hezekiah has to have so much more faith than some weak person like me. What in the world must have happened there? The strength to just turn over this country and then in a generation his son just takes it all back and not only that, he sacrifices his own children. But this is the beauty of God. The beauty and the part I don't understand. This is the reckless love where I gave you the lyrics. What happens with Manasseh? What happens with Manasseh? Well, here's his strengths. I just gave you his weaknesses. Here's his strength despite bitter consequences bitter he gets let out with the fish hooks he sees his people let out with the fish hooks he has this horrible loss of the country how would i react to that i'll tell you folks i'd react bitter my dad worked so hard to build this up and this is what you do to all that we've done god we tithe we did all this and this is what you do but here's what manasseh finally does he humbly repents from the sin And it shows us there that God accepts his repentance. God forgives him. God loves recklessly to this horrible killer of children, to this horrible idol worshiper, to this horrible person who ruined his family's legacy of loving the Lord. He forgave him. And it shows us that forgiveness is limited not by the severity of our sin, Here's the gospel in today's message, but it's by our willingness to repent. And it also convicts me about how often are we as the Christians the ones that are least willing to repent. But Manasseh was. So being a good father to our children. I would say finally in closing, some thoughts. We need to be an example they're going to look up to us. And I can remember as a young man, I thought that was really my job. Go out and be a good provider and then be a good example. And especially as I became a Christian, I'm like, my children are going to learn because I'm going to go to church and they'll see me. My children are going to learn because they're going to see me have Bible study. My children are going to learn because I'm listening to Joy FM. Right? My children are going to learn because I don't cuss much. Right? But what really they're going to learn from is the last part. We also must teach our children. We must teach. And there are many scriptures. There's a beautiful scripture in Deuteronomy. I won't take us there. But they're here in Psalm 78.5. It says, For he established the testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers. They should make them known to their children. He didn't say commanded the mothers. He commanded the fathers to make them known to our children. And it breaks my heart again 
How many times do we see kids coming into church, and I'm preaching to the choir here because I see a lot of fathers, but how many times, maybe something for us to pray for, and it's the mothers, the grandmothers, it's the women, it's not the fathers bringing them to church, not the fathers working in children's church, it's not the fathers taking the time to teach. And maybe children's church isn't your gifting, but I'd encourage you, take that time to actually teach. And last thing I'll say, that has become the hard, one of the hardest things for me as a father. We've recently uh, uh, purchased a small farm. And so as we're working to make this farm a better place and a better place and a better place, I keep finding myself going through, I need to get the brush hogging done. We need to get the hay moved. We need to get the grass cut. We got to get this done. We got to get that done. We got to get the other. And I'm, and I'm good about boys come with me. And then I'm bad about, let's go pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. Let's get the work done. Did you break that again? Again? How did you break that? Did you not check the oil? How could you not check the oil? And on and on, what happens? The teaching. I lose focus about the teaching and the importance of the teaching. So taking the time, I would encourage you to take the time to teach. And I'll end with this parable. It's not straight Bible, but I think it's applicable. Three fathers who each felt the soft hand of their child in their own realized the responsibility of teaching their child about God. One felt the awesome responsibility that was his. So he taught the child about the power and the might of God. And as they walked down the pathway of life, they came to tall trees in the forest. And he pointed to them and he said, God made them and God can cause them to come crashing down anytime he wants. As they walked in the hot sun, he said, this is God's son. He made it and he can cause it to be so hot and so intense that the plants, plants in the field will wither and they will die. Again and again, he hammered home the power of God and how the child must be obedient to the, to face, when he's face to face with God. So then one day, they did come face to face with God. And the child hid behind his father, afraid to even look, refusing to put his hand into the hand of God. The second father also realized his responsibility to teach his child about God. And hurriedly, he tried to teach all the important lessons he knew. And this is where I fall into a lot. As they looked at the trees, they only stopped for a moment to gaze at them. As they looked at the flowers of the field, they hurried on. He told stories, but they were hurried and crammed together. He filled the child full of facts, but he never taught him how to live or to love God. And finally, one day at twilight, they came face to face with God. But the child only gave God a casual glance and then turned away. The third father felt the touch of a tender hand in his, and he adjusted his steps to the tiny steps of the child. They walked along, stopping to look at all of God's beauty and grandeur. They walked in the fields, and they picked the flowers. They felt the delicate petals and smelled their fragrance. They watched a bird in flight and another building her nest and laying eggs and sitting on them until they are hatched. They watched all of the beauties of nature. And while the father told his child stories about God over and over again, finally, one day in the twilight, they saw the face of God, and without hesitation, the child placed his hand trustingly into the hand of his heavenly father. So I pray uh, if you're a father here now or you're a father-to-be, that you can be a father uh, that will raise up children 
that will willingly and graciously go and put their hand in the hand of their heavenly father, just like they've had an earthly father model them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example that you are for us, and thank you that no matter whether we're blessed with the very best earthly fathers or whether we're not, we have all we need in the great I Am. And as Travis was saying earlier, when we can let go, when we can trust you, when we can completely open ourselves and let you fill us up, you'll give us the strength that we don't have to be good fathers. You'll give us the strength that we have to be heavenly, righteous men. And you'll give us the strength to be uh, followers of God wherever we are. So just help us to remember uh, and to seek you on this Father's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.